0: Guys, it's me, Alex. I'm one of the pastors here at Life Church Livonia. Great to be together today. Great to kind of see you. If you could put your name in the chat so that I know you're here, that would be great. Guys, it's like October 8th already. Isn't that wild? We're almost halfway through October. And I don't know about you, uh, but this season is very, very full for me. And I think for most of us, like 99% of people, fall is a really busy season. New classes, new grades, new teachers, new sports, new schedules, new expectations, new stresses. It's a season in which it's so easy for me to let my schedule be driven by the expectations of other people instead of by my own purpose, vision, and values. And here at Life Church Livonia, we believe that we've got one life, and that one life is full of time that once we spend, we don't get it back. And so we want our fall schedules not to be driven by the pace of culture, or the hope that somehow we can make everybody happy. We want our false schedules to be driven by the things that are most important. And here at Life Church of Livonia, we believe those are the values of Jesus. And that's where our core values come from. That's where our vision and mission come from. And that's why we're doing this series called Break, through the busy, because we want to recenter on um, what are the things that matter, not just in the immediacy of this season, but into eternity. And so week one, we talked about our vision, real people, real God, real life. And a vision is the answer to the question, what kind of place are we making? And here at Life Church Livonia, we're trying to make a place where people can be real with each other. And those real people can come to know our real God, and then experience real life change, real transformation, and real life to the full, here and now, in Jesus. And week two, we talked about our mission. If that's our vision, the place we're trying to make our mission, is how are we getting there? And that is through Know, Grow, and Go. We do that through trying to help people come to know Jesus. Through growing in depth of maturity, uh, in relationship with both God and His body. And then going and serving the world as we fulfill the great Commission. And on that week, a couple weeks ago, we celebrated baptism. We saw four different people uh, get baptized and publicly proclaim their commitment to Jesus, and we praise God for that. And then last week, Pastor Kate talked about one of our core values that we are highly relational. Everything we do is through the lens of valuing relationships, and that's not just from us, that's from Jesus. When He says to love God and to love your neighbor as you love yourself, these are the two greatest commandments. We take that really seriously. And this week we're talking about another one of our core values, which is that we are faithfully biblical. Sometime back in the mid-1800s, there was a small-time British manufacturer, a man by the name of John Tate. Tate decided to go into business making compasses, which were a very popular and necessary navigational tool for any discipline of travel and merchandise in his day. Mr. Tate set up a factory. He installed machinery. He hired workers. He made large investments and he began turning out compasses. He had just completed his first batch of 500 compasses when a problem came to his attention. You see, things were looking up at that point. Production was running smoothly. His dreams of owning a business and making money in the industrial revolution were all coming true. But then one of his workers came to him and said, Mr. Tate, We just finished the first batch of compasses, but could you help me understand which way is north? And Mr. Tate, confused and kind of irritated, grabbed the compass from this gentleman to show him which way was north, because it obviously has it written on the compass, and Tate's stomach dropped, and his face dropped, as he realized that on this first batch of 500 compasses, the needle certainly pointed somewhere, but there was no marking for north or for south and so you didn't know where you were going if you owned a Tate Compass. Needless to say, he didn't sell very many of them. And because he didn't make any profit off that first 500, he went out of business pretty quickly, the workers were laid off, the factory closed, but his memory lives on. And the joke goes, if you own a Tate's Compass, do you know what you're called? Lost. (laughs) Because you can't know where you're going. And a compass is a very simple tool. And it has a simple purpose. That purpose is to help you know you're going the right direction. That's what a compass does. It helps you know you're going the right direction. And here's the deal. Every single human person is looking for a compass for life. A tool, a mechanism, a means of discernment by which we can figure out whether or not our life is going the right direction. And so my simple question for you today is, what's your compass? what's your compass? What are the things that you are using to discern whether or not your life is headed in the right direction? I love this tool invented by John Wesley, who is an old pastor uh, in the 1800s, actually. Um, and, And John Wesley claimed that there were four tools that every human being uses, similar to the four cardinal directions, and that these four tools and rankings of different order of influence are how anybody figures out what's true and whether or not their life is heading the right direction. And those four tools are experience, reason, tradition, and scripture. This is called, in a very fancy academic way, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. So experience is just what it sounds like, right? It's your conscience. It's your gut. It's your past. It's your pain. It's the experiences you've had that cause you to make the decisions you make. And so maybe for you, you believe in God because you had a powerful experience with God. Maybe for you, the reason you don't believe in God is because you've had so many painful experiences. You think to yourself, how can a good God be real if my experience is so bad? That's experience. The next mechanism for discernment is reason. This is the things we can understand, our mind, logic, philosophy, science, empiricism, And maybe you have faith because you were led to faith through good reasons for intelligent design through science. Maybe the reason that you lack faith is because you're an empiricist, a philosopher, a logician. You pride yourself on your intellect and you don't think there are good reasons for God. The next is tradition. The people who came before us. Tradition is more than just what my parents did. It's our history. It's culture. It's political affiliation even. What have we always done? And maybe you believe because your grandma believed and you think your grandma is one of the greatest people you know. And so in keeping with the tradition of your grandparents, you keep in faith with Jesus. Maybe you don't believe because your own personal family history is one that's so destructive. Maybe you come from a family of Christians or maybe even pastors and ministers who did not do a good job representing Jesus. And so you're trying to break from that tradition. Now, tradition is not something that's uh, often prized here in America. We love to break tradition. We think of tradition as old, stodgy, useless, uh, even, we think of it in so many negative ways. Uh, But in other cultures, tradition is really highly prized. And lastly is scripture. Now, this may seem funny because maybe you're here today and you're like, well, I don't believe the Bible. Or I don't know if I believe the Bible. Why would I use scripture as a means of discernment? And really, what I'm not saying is the Bible. The Bible is a scripture right? But so is the Quran, so is the Bhagavad Gita, so are many other, there are other religions with other scriptures. when I say scripture, I don't mean you believe the Bible. I mean that these are the things outside of yourself you point to as authoritative. And so for many people in America, maybe their scriptures are something that they saw on TikTok and this one quote that was really powerful in a book they read in high school and, you know, something their dad said and something that maybe something from Taoist or Zen philosophy. And, you know, people just kind of piece together things that they go, that's authoritative. That seems true to me. And so, when I say we're faithfully biblical, what I mean is this. All of us rank these four things in terms of most important to least important in determining what's true. And at Life Church Livonia, each individual has different rankings of these things. But as a church, scripture is our number one in the most influential in how we discern what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's not, what is reality and what isn't. And even more than that, I would argue. If the Bible isn't your number one discerner of truth, you are using a Tate's compass that will inevitably make you lost. Now you may be thinking, that's a bold claim. And it is a bold claim. You might be thinking, I don't believe the Bible. Why should I care about anything you have to say after this? And if that's you, I just want to say, the Bible makes some huge claims about reality. Huge. The Bible claims that the nature of reality is such that there is a heaven and there is a hell that real people are going to go, including you. It teaches that we get one life and that's it. There's no reincarnation. It teaches that there are second chances within this life, but not once it's over. It teaches that the things we do while we're alive impact eternity. And if there's a possibility that any of those claims are true and you don't believe the Bible, you better be 100% certain because if you're wrong, this is a matter of life and death. Maybe you believe in Jesus, but you just don't know if you believe all the Bible. You know, like, like, gosh, Jesus, big fan, love him. Yeah, love your enemy, great stuff. But the Old Testament, yeah, people die in the Old Testament. And I just don't get that, and I don't know if I agree with that. And, you know, some of the the biblical stances on marriage and human sexuality, like, I just don't, I'm not on board with that. But like, Jesus, I love Jesus. And if that's you this morning, I want to help us move towards this place of, being faithfully biblical where the question isn't, well, how do I feel about it? But okay, what's true? What's true? And how do we move from there? And maybe today you do believe in the Bible and you're newly wrestling with some of the issues I just mentioned. Maybe you're just in the throes of the Christian life and you're going, man, I want to follow God. I want to be faithfully biblical. But what does that mean in this context or in that context with this person or with that family member? What does it look like to be faithfully biblical? And am I willing to to lose relationships or have strain in my relationships over my faithfulness to what I believe God has said in His Word? And where are the places I might be wrong and need to reevaluate? We have a couple different groups here, I think, this morning. But wherever you're at, the question for today is why are we at Life Church Livonia faithfully biblical? And why do I think you should be too? Now, quick disclaimer. The next 10 minutes are gonna be very reason-heavy, very mind-centric, very intellectual, because we have good reason for believing in the Bible. We don't just do it because it, we've always done it that way, right? Um, we are gonna get back to some heart connection stuff, but that's not going to be for the next 10 minutes. So, if you're a heart-centered person, you're like, just to help me feel it, help me feel why the Bible is true, we're gonna get there, but we need to talk about some reasons first. And in order to answer this question of why are we faithfully biblical and why do I think you should be too, we have to answer two other questions. Question number one is what did Jesus claim about the Bible? We're followers of Jesus, so what does Jesus say about the Bible? And then secondly, how did Jesus substantiate those claims about the Bible? Now Jesus is a very popular historical figure. It's a historical fact. He's not just a good man or a prophet or a symbol. It's a historical fact that Jesus lived and died on the planet Earth. During his 33 years of life, during that time Jesus lived as a real person on the earth, he made a lot of bold claims. He claimed to be the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. He claimed to be God's son. He claimed to be one with God. He claimed that there was a heaven and a hell, and that without divine intervention, human beings were headed towards one of those places by their own choice. Jesus claimed that God loves us. And he wants a relationship with us. Jesus claimed that belief in him was salvation from death. Jesus claimed his spirit would indwell all his followers. And Jesus claimed that the Bible was God's word to humanity. Jesus was a rabbi, which means he was a teacher of God's word. And in his day, that meant the Old Testament, because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. We'll get to the New Testament in a second. But to Jesus, the Old Testament Jewish scriptures that he lived and taught from were not interesting literature to be played with intellectually, they were not emotional stimulation that just lasted till Monday, and they were not one opinion in the midst of many more complete ideals of today. They were God-breathed truth. Jesus would say things like, God spoke by the Holy Spirit through David. And then he would quote a psalm. He would say, God said, and then he would quote Moses. Jesus would say things like, no dot of the I or cross of the T will ever be broken until all these things are accomplished, as he referred to the Old Testament prophecies about him and about Israel, about the future and about God. Jesus begins his ministry by quoting Isaiah, saying God spoke through Isaiah about Jesus. Jesus quotes from Old Testament books like Hosea, Micah, Isaiah, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Zechariah, and Psalms, and he quotes from them not as intellectual anecdotes, or good lessons to live by, but as God breathed truth. Moreover, Jesus used scriptures on the road to Emmaus to teach two disciples how all the Old Testament pointed to and culminated in his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. Okay, you might say, I can see that Jesus believed the Old Testament wasn't just a collection of ancient writings, but Jesus actually believed that the Old Testament was God's word to humanity, was truth. But what about the New Testament? And that's a good question. Every serious thinker should ask that question, but there's a good answer for that too. You see, the first four books of the New Testament are biographies of Jesus's life. We call them the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We know about Jesus as a historical person from other first century resources, but the Gospels give us the most detail on his life, death, and ministry. Now, the Gospels are not just biblical documents. They are historical documents from the first century AD. And there are four different biographies, like I mentioned, and these were recorded from eyewitnesses, people who actually saw and were with Jesus and witnessed the events that took place. And in terms of their validity as historical documents, the New Testament has 24,000 supporting documents verifying its historical accuracy. The next most supported document in the ancient world is Homer's Iliad, with only 643 supporting documents. The New Testament is airtight in terms of uh, critically assessing its historical validity as actually being written uh, by the people it was written by and the places that was said that those things took place in. And it's 40 times more supported than any other resource that we have in terms of historical accuracy. Now, some of the New Testament books that were written, that are after the Gospels, were written after Jesus' life. So how could Jesus possibly think that, the, uh, after the accounts of his life, that that was scripture, that that was God-breathed truth? And I really appreciate the Gospel Coalition's blog on this matter. The writer says this, Near the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus had an important conversation with his disciples. He told them that he would soon die, and he would soon rise again and ascend into heaven. And in preparing preparing them for those events, Jesus said this, and this is from John 16. He said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus said that he would say more to his disciples than he had said in his earthly ministry. He also made it clear that after ascending into heaven, he would send down the Holy Spirit, which the Bible calls the Spirit of Truth, who would take from Jesus and give to the disciples so they could flesh out the complete revelation of God, finishing the things that Jesus wanted to say. J.I. Packer, a New Testament scholar, comments on this. He says that he had promised the twelve that the Spirit should come to teach them what in his own earthly ministry Jesus had left unsaid. And he kept his promise so that the apostolic teaching was in reality the complete and final version of his own. What he means by this is very simply, as Jesus died and rose from the dead after his resurrection, he tells the 12 disciples, listen, I didn't get to tell you everything I need to tell you, but don't worry, I'm sending my spirit to, tell, to speak through you from me and finish what I wanted to say. So Jesus is really pre-affirming the ministry of the apostles as an extension of his own ministry. We can see this evidenced even within the Bible itself. Peter, one of the 12 apostles, says this about Paul's writings in 2 Peter. And Peter and Paul lived at the same time. Both had seen Jesus resurrected. Both were alive when Jesus was physically doing his ministry. And Peter says this about Paul's letters to the churches. He says, And count the the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him from the Holy Spirit, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Amen, Peter. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Do you see what's happening here? Peter, who was alive with Jesus, and Paul, who was alive with Jesus, Peter is saying about things Paul wrote. That's scripture. That's from God. That's on the same level as the Old Testament that we believe that testified about Jesus. That is powerful stuff. So even Jesus' own apostles are looking at each other's writings and going, that's from God, that's scripture, that's authoritative, and that's from the Holy Spirit Jesus said that he was going to give us to fulfill what he wanted to say. So in summary, Jesus believed that both the Old Testament and the New Testament were God's word. And as God spoke through people to people about who he was and what was true, John Mark Comer, a pastor and author, summarizes everything we just talked about really well in one sentence when he says, scripture is a library of writings that are both human and divine, that together tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus. And so Jesus claims that the Bible's true. And so you might be thinking, so what? I don't believe in Jesus. <laughs> Who cares what Jesus thought about the Bible? And so we get to our second question. If that's the Jesus claims that the Bible's true. How does Jesus substantiate that claim? Because, you know, what Jesus really doesn't, what he said doesn't really matter if you don't believe in him, right? Well, one of the claims Jesus has made is that he's God, right? He's God's son, that he's on the level of God, that he is actually one with God. And um, it's really, really easy to assume that the people of the first century were convinced that he was God just because they were dumber than us. You know what I mean? Like, we just think like, oh... Ancient people were stupid and uncivilized and they didn't really get it. And so, you know, of course, Jesus could convince them that he was God, but not me. I'm, a, I'm an academic. I'm an intellectual. I'm a thinker, you know. <laughs> and that's called historical arrogance. It means that we assume that we're smarter, wiser, and better of the people of the past. But the people of the past were not fools who couldn't discern truth from lie. They weren't just bound by their own time in human history, fully ignorant of reality. The people of the past gave us mathematics, need I remind you. They gave us science, the empirical method, uh, the scientific method, rather. They gave us uh, the seven wonders of the world. They gave us art and so much more. And what's more, Jesus was not the first Jewish person to claim to be the Messiah, okay? There were many who had come before him who inspired a group of people to follow that to follow him as Messiah. And then you know what happened to these would-be messiahs who said, it's me, I'm God's fulfillment, I'm the one prophesied about. They were killed. They were killed by Rome. And most of them were crucified. And you know what happened after they were crucified? Their movements died. They totally disbanded. And so the question is, after Jesus was killed, why didn't his movement disband? Well, the way Jesus convinced the people of the first century he was, in fact, who he said he was, was through acts of power that fit his claims. So if Jesus claims he's one with God, as he claims to be, he would have to do things that God could do, have power over things God has power over. So Jesus shows his power over weather by calming storms, over reason through doing supernatural miracles, over the body through healing diseases and infirmities, over the spiritual realm by casting out demons. But the reason that Jesus' movement didn't die when Jesus died was because, unlike the other would be messiahs, the reason that billions of people over the last 2,000 years have lived and died for Jesus is not because he could calm a storm. The reason that Jesus' own brothers and family members believed in Jesus after his death but not before it was because of one simple haunting fact the tomb of Jesus Christ was empty. And that's a historical fact. Jesus was killed and no one's ever found the body. Jesus made all the claims that we talked about and claimed that he would die and rise from the dead. And on the third day after his death, the tomb was empty. Both the validity of Christianity and the validity of the Bible rise and fall on this historical event. And many critics have many theories as to why this is. Some claim mass hallucination, which would have meant that over 500 non localized people all hallucinated the same thing around the same time over the course of uh, a couple days and weeks. Some critics claim that Jesus never really died, despite the blood loss, suffocation, stabbing through the lungs, the expert killing of the Roman army, and the death of the other two who were crucified with him. Some claim that the body was stolen despite Jesus' own brothers dying in testimony that Jesus' body was not in fact stolen, but resurrected. Again, the fact that Jesus' own family didn't believe in Jesus while his earthly ministry was happening, but did believe in his godship after his resurrection, is so compelling. What would you have to do to convince your family you were God? Okay? That's, what would you have to do to convince your family that you were God? Another tick against the claim that the disciples stole the body is that people may die for a cause, but not for a cause they know is a lie. And every disciple died horrifically. Peter was crucified upside down. James was killed in cold blood. John was boiled in oil and didn't die, but was horribly disfigured. And then he wrote his contributions to the New New Testament, saying that Jesus was Lord and risen from the dead. That's not something that people who are peddling lies do. There are other critical alternatives to the fact of the empty tomb. But here at Life Church of Livonia, we stand in conviction with the 500 followers of Jesus who saw his risen body, including the apostles. We believe the best and indeed the truest explanation for the empty tomb is that Jesus is who he said he was, that he is God with skin on. And that he said he did what he said he would do, which was rise from the dead. And if that's true, if we believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead, then it vindicates Jesus' own claims about himself, which means that if we believe Jesus is true, we must believe the Bible is true too, because Jesus did not see the Bible as a collection of human authors who were simply blinded by their own time and history, blinded by ignorance out of context, and unaware of true moral ideals. Jesus saw these human pen writings as partnership with his Father and Spirit to communicate God's hearts, thoughts, standard love, and truth to the whole world, including you and me. In short, we don't believe in, the, in Jesus because of the Bible. We believe in the Bible because of Jesus. Now I realize, if you're skeptical about this, this is at best an overview, and it may not be enough to convince you that the Bible's true, but questions are legal here. And hey, listen, you are welcome to belong here before you believe, and if that's you, there are some great resources that have been recommended to me, and I'd like to point you to them. I haven't read all of all of these resources, but I I do trust the people that have given them to me, and I trust in the ones that I have read. And those resources can be found in the digital bulletin. Things like The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and others. And I'd really encourage you to check those out if you're interested in more. And I would love to talk to you and have a conversation about God and whether or not God is real and Jesus rose from the dead and all those things. So that's the end of all of our talk, the, the, the reason and intellectual talk. And the evidence is truly helpful, and we have good reason to believe the things we believe. But really for me, it was my experience with people who believed in the Bible that convinced me of its truth. It was the lives of people who I knew believed in God's Word and loved it. And when I think about people who helped me to believe in the truth of Scripture, I think about people like Dave Beetham. You know, just like Lucian is our volunteer youth leader now, Uh, When we planted Life Church Canton, Dave Beetham was the volunteer youth leader then. And Dave was really good at loving really difficult people. And I was in middle school, and I don't know if you know, but middle schoolers are notoriously difficult to love. (laughs) Awkward and annoying and goofy and distracted. And there were a couple kids in the youth group that were really hard for me to like. And Dave loved them so well and would talk with me about why Jesus loved them, and why that meant we needed to love them too. And Dave believed in God's word. And because of that, Dave helped me learn how to love difficult people. I think of people like Sharon Buttry One of my favorite stories about Sharon is the time she turned a mugging into a hugging. See, Sharon's a missionary in uh, Hamtramck, Michigan, and um, just is such a, a powerful ministry there. And Hamtramck can be a dangerous place. One day, as Sharon was getting into her car, a gentleman in a hoodie uh, opened the door just as she did and got in with her into the passenger side and pulled out a gun and said to Sharon, give me all your money. And Sharon, surprised but not overwhelmed, began to take out her wallet and talk to the man. Okay, okay, let me see what I've got. And as she was pulling out her wallet, she saw the man's hand was shaking. And she paused the money and just turned to him and said, you haven't really done this before, have you? (laughs) and the man said give me your money and she said I just am wondering what's going on in your life that you feel like this is your only choice and the man broke into tears and just shared with Sharon all about his life about his son about a recent breakup about his desperateness and Sharon led that guy to Christ and then invited him to church that Sunday and you know what happened? When that guy didn't show up at church, and, and I, I believe Sharon gave him a little money to help him after hearing his story, uh, but it turned from a mugging into a gift, you know. And so she leads him to Christ. That, church, that Sunday he doesn't come to church, and the local gangs in Hamtramck loved Sharon, because Sharon had single-handedly saved Hamtramck from bankruptcy multiple times by writing grants for the city. And so the local gangs love Sharon, so she reached out to her gang contacts, finds this guy, and shows up at his place and goes, What the heck? You didn't come to church like you said you were going to come to church! And she's chasing her mugger down to come to know Jesus and change his life. Who does that? Who can see someone who is trying to attack and victimize them as a person who needs love and a person who needs hope? and a person who needs Jesus. You know why Sharon did that? Because Sharon believed the Bible. Sharon believed that what God said was true. I also think of my uncle Jamie, a man named Jim Wallace. Now my uncle Jamie lived in a time in uh, American history where racism was normal, it was expected, and it was defended with the Bible but my uncle could see both through the Bible and his own experience that this was deeply wrong. And because of the teachings of scripture, it gave him courage to stand up against something that was wrong even when it was considered right. It was because of the teachings of the Bible that he was able to stand against racism in the 1960s. And it's because of the teachings of the Bible that these people who I love, love people so well. They were able to live bigger lives than I had ever thought, lives that were bigger than survival but were about purpose and standing up for what's right and loving the most difficult of people. Their example was enough for me to begin trusting in God's Word a little bit at a time. And you know what? Every time I took a step of faith to obey God's Word, my life was so fruitful and full, it was overwhelming. Every need I have I had God provided for. Every sacrifice I made, every change I've allowed, everything I let go to be obedient to God, it's all been worth it a thousand times over, and I would do it again in a heartbeat. Because every time I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you a little bit more here, God showed up with more than I could have ever asked for or imagined. I followed Jesus because in every leap of faith I've taken, he's proven to be true. Jesus has changed me at the very core of my whole being. I am not the person I was before, and I thank God for that because I see where my life was going, and I'm so grateful that God saved me from that. Jesus didn't just save me from sin, He makes me continually whole day by day in the most fundamental and profound parts of the human experience. I believe in the Bible because of good reason and because of real experience of the hand of God in my life to transform me. In the most profound ways. And that's why we do what we do here, because we want you to experience that too. We want you to experience life and life in all its fullness. That's why we're called Life Church. So, what does that mean for us here today? If Jesus rose from the grave, then he is who he said he is. And if he is who he said he is, the Bible's true. And it's this self-revelation to humanity, it's God's self-revelation to humanity about what's good and wrong, about what's evil and what is right, about what is reality and what is a lie, about what God's will is and what it isn't, about what truth is and what it isn't. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I just wanna ask you, how well do you know God's word? And I don't say that to shame you, but for Christians, we believe this book and we base our lives on it. And I know part of my Christian journey was becoming deeply convicted that I based my life, I claimed to base my life on a book I didn't even know. And if that's you, I just want you to start with me. If you just have, if you uh, have never really read through the Bible, I just want to encourage you to start with a regular devotional time where maybe you start reading through the gospels or maybe you start reading through the book of acts or maybe you start reading through the epistles and paul's letters and if that's you i just really want to encourage you to start with our devo card to just start with a regular time where you have silence time in god's word and prayer where you write down your questions and you write down the things you notice and we want to help you start this so if you're struggling in this area you're a follower of jesus but you're just struggling to get going here please reach out to us. We really want to help you in this. Maybe you have a, a decent quiet time and you've read several books or maybe even the whole New Testament. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you to read the whole Old Testament. Read the whole Bible. Understand it. Contend with it. Wrestle. Let God speak to you. And if you've read the whole Bible once or more, or you're doing it again, I just want to ask you, if you're familiar with God's Word, who are you teaching? Who are you walking with to help them understand what you have come to know for those of us who are following jesus but we're reevaluating how much of the bible we believe or what parts we're going to keep or what parts we're going to kind of ignore or, you know what things we are trying to figure out and what how what does the bible really say about these things i just want to ask you are you willing to obey god if you don't understand Having a place where you're contending with what the Bible really says, honestly, I think that's a normal place to be. I think that there's many parts of the Christian journey where you're just like, man, I I don't know what God wants from me here. I don't know how to love this person in my life. Gosh, what does it really say about women in ministry? Gosh, what does it really say about marriage and human sexuality? And I think that those are really good questions. But my questions to you, if you're in a place of discernment, are who is walking with you? Are you getting input from both sides or just the side you want to side with? And then, are you willing to obey him if you don't understand? And finally, there are some of us here today who don't believe in Jesus, who don't follow Jesus, who don't believe the Bible's true. And if you don't believe in Jesus today, I just want to ask you, what is holding you back? What's keeping you from following Jesus as Lord? What's keeping you from believing in him and finding life and truth and hope and finding the love you've spent your whole life looking for? What compass are you using to guide you in your life right now? And is it working? For many of us, our compasses are driven by our fears, are pointing to our old pain that's unhealed, are pointing away from a voice in our past we're just trying to not become. Sometimes our compasses are pointing at the pride of being right or the shame of being wrong. But if you don't believe in Jesus today, I want you to know that Jesus was a real person who lived a real life, a perfect life. Because, see, the Bible says that we have sin. We've done things that are apart from God's plan. We've missed the mark. And that has separated us from God. But on the cross, Jesus took all our sins upon himself. And he died to put that sin to death and then rose that we might join him in eternal life. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, and that includes you. That he gave his one and only son so that whoever believed in him would not die, but would have eternal life. And I want to invite you into that eternal life right now. I just want to invite you to pray with me. Jesus. Jesus, we just want to ask you by your Holy Spirit right now. We just want to ask you, who do you say you are? And is your word true. Give us ears to hear, Lord, and faith to trust your answer. Jesus, we believe that you are who you say you are, that you're not just a man, not just a good prophet, but that you are God. We believe, Lord, that you can do what you say you can do. We believe you rose from the dead and you died for our sins. We believe that your word is true because it is yours and that you are right here and you are right now and you are working for our good. Lord, we choose to step out in faith and we choose to trust you. Help us, Lord, to take our next step of obedience. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you just prayed with us, please reach out to us. If you're looking for help at getting more acquainted with God's word to be someone who's faithfully biblical, please reach out to us. We cannot wait to walk alongside you.